going to continue our time in Titus. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 8 through 11 today. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. So as we're nearing the end of Titus, it's good to keep in mind what the theme has been throughout this book, and it's what we're going to see even today. Uh, Paul continues to come to it time and time again. We can say this, truth, or I might use uh, synonymously with that, I might use them interchangeably, good doctrine produces godliness. If we're to talk about godliness for a minute, we might say words like Christ-likeness, um, we might use, or if we're to, to kind of boil it down and, and, and kind of put flesh to that, I think it looks like this when we talk about godliness or Christ-likeness. I think it looks like this, that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And do those things as the word of God has dictated. So it doesn't mean loving the Lord as you see fit, but as he sees fit. It means loving your neighbor, not as you would like to love your neighbor, but loving your neighbor as the Lord has said to love your neighbor. Or, not loving your neighbor like the culture, culture around us says we're to love our neighbor, but again, loving our neighbor as the word of the Lord has told us to love our neighbor. So good doctrine, the teachings of Scripture, produce godliness in our lives by the power of the Spirit. So why this continual emphasis on good doctrine? Why this emphasis on doing good works or becoming more godly? Why is that continually just coming up in the book of Titus? Well, I think we have to remember the context in which Paul's writing uh, in and and what's going on there uh, where Titus is ministering. So remember, they're in Crete, and the culture in which they live in is extremely wicked and ungodly. Specifically within the church and kind of around the church, we see so many false teachers rising up that proclaim to know the Lord, so they sound like they know God through what they're saying, but they deny him by their works. They're greedy for shameful gain. Not only that, the culture around them is extremely wicked, right? They're pleasure seekers. They're these Cretans. They're lazy gluttons. They're evil beasts. They're liars, And so the culture around them is living in, doing works of evil and wickedness. And so Paul is calling Titus, and he's calling the church to live in direct contrast to that. He is saying, emphasize good doctrine. Emphasize good doctrine. Don't be like the false teachers. Also, if you emphasize good doctrine, it ought to produce godliness in your lives so that you will live in stark contrast to the people around you. So the church is supposed to be built up to live in contrast to the culture around them. They are to speak differently than the false teachers, but they're also to live differently than the world around them. They are to speak of the good doctrines that we see in Scripture, and they are to live in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. And... Back in chapter uh, 2, verse 10, it says it so beautifully. Whenever it's talking about living in good works or godliness, why? What's the point? What's the point of all these good works? Do good works save people? Is God changing the method of how he brings people to salvation all of a sudden? No, the good works, as Paul says in 2, verse 10, they adorn the doctrine. They make beautiful the doctrine. It's taking the beautiful words of our Savior and what Jesus has done for us, and it's giving beautiful action to it. It adorns it. 
right? It complements it in that way. And so the church in Crete is to live in such a way that they speak the beautiful message of the gospel, but they also live that out as well and adorn the good doctrine of the faith. So Paul gets to, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, he begins to talk about two things. What is unprofit, or I'm sorry, what is profitable for the church and then what is unprofitable or divisive. So very just simple outline for today. What is profitable and what is unprofitable and divisive. So the Corinthians need to wrestle with those questions. What is good for the church? What ought they to consider? What ought they devote themselves to? And what ought they avoid? What ought they be just on guard against? And we can say that for us as well. We live in a culture, and you could say this is every nation that's ever existed, that is extremely wicked and ungodly, that does not live according to God's word, that does not speak God's word because they're not God's people. And so for us, it would do us well if we would consider, all right, what will be profitable for us? What will be good and beneficial for us to consider, for us to devote ourselves to here at Edgewood? And what would be unprofitable? What would be divisive in the church? What kind of things ought we be on guard against, lest we, we, we fall into that trap of giving ourselves over to those things? So those are the questions that we want to wrestle with today as we work through verses 8 through 11. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray. Titus 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, you have given us your word. You have spoken to your people. You have caused that word to be written down, to be preserved through the ages, so that we might have it because you delight to reveal yourself to us. So what grace and what mercy that we are even able to open up your word today. So would you give us grace to see, eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive well what you would speak to us. We pray that your spirit would powerfully work within us in your perfect ways and according to your perfect plan. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what is profitable? What ought the church in Crete, what ought we devote ourselves over to? Verse 8, so Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. And then he says a little later, insist on these things. Uh, and then a little later after that sentence, these things are excellent. So what is Paul referring to when he's talking about the saying? What is he talking about when he's referencing these things? I think what he's doing there is he's referencing everything that just came before. So look in verses 4 through 7. In verses 4 through 7, we see a beautiful summary of the gospel. Let's read that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what is Paul saying should be insisted upon? What is he saying is trustworthy? What do they need to devote themselves what do they need to devote themselves to? The gospel to continue to give themselves over to the gospel, the saving work of Jesus. He saved us not because of our works or not because we deserved it or earned it in any way or not because we kind of came a little bit of the way and then he pulled us the rest of the way. No. According to passages like Romans chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 2, we as sinful people are dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not desire the Lord. We're not righteous. We're not good apart from him. Yet in his sheer grace and mercy, he saves us because he delights to do so. He delights to do so. Jesus is the embodiment of the loving kindness and goodness of God. Do you want to know what his goodness looks like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what his loving kindness looks like? Look at Jesus. God's goodness showed up. And what did he do? He saved us. He took our sin upon himself. When we were dead, when we were his enemies, when we were under his wrath, he saves us to make us alive, to bring us back to himself, to reconcile to him, us to himself. That's what God does. It's what he delights to do. So we see this beautiful summary there in verses four through seven. And when Paul says, I want you to insist on these things and that these things are excellent and profitable for people, he's telling us, continually give yourself over to the gospel. The gospel is not merely for beginners. The gospel is not just for new believers. The gospel is not just what you tell people who are lost in hopes that they'll come to Jesus. When Paul says insist on these things, he's saying give yourself over to it. Constantly give yourself over to the gospel. Sing about the truths of God's saving work. Pray to yourself, pray amongst the church about God's saving work and what he accomplishes through Jesus. Proclaim it as we come to the word to see it in the scriptures. Insist on these things. We also see that the gospel actually makes all of God's doctrine, all of the good doctrine of the faith, the gospel makes it beautiful. This is what I mean by this. If there were no gospel, if Jesus never saved sinners... The idea or the truth, the teaching of God's sovereignty, sovereignty would be terrifying for all people. But if we see God's sovereignty and we also see what God and his sovereignty does on the cross through Jesus Christ for us in pouring out his love and grace, then the fact that God is sovereign and over all and ruling and reigning becomes comforting to God's people, not oppressive not terrifying, it assures them, especially when we live in a chaotic and broken world, to know that God is on the throne becomes comforting to God's people because of the gospel. Think about the love of God for just a moment. The doctrine of God's love is wishy-washy sentiment were it not for the gospel. Because in the gospel and in what Jesus does for us on the cross, we see the justice of God revealed against sin and evil. 
We know that his love is not wishy-washy sentiment, but it means something. As Jesus, in his love for sinners, takes upon himself the punishment and the judgment that we deserve. That's, those are just two examples. The gospel makes beautiful all the good doctrines of the faith. So as we come to the word and we see teachings that are maybe easy for us to hold on to, or especially those times when we read passages that are teaching us about God and it's difficult and it's hard and we have more questions than we have answers, the thing that we get to come back to is seeing Jesus and what he does and accomplishes for us in his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. And it makes it beautiful and it comforts and it assures us, and it means something because of who Jesus is and what he's done. The point of our gathering then is we insist on these things, is we don't get past the gospel. The point of our gathering then is to proclaim the name of Jesus. This exists, this pulpit exists, not for the glorifying or magnifying of my name or anyone else's, but the name of Jesus. And so as we come together, if we are not seeing more of Jesus, we have missed the point. And so if we open up on the word on Sundays and we leave here knowing more about God, but nothing else, we've missed the point. If we leave feeling better about ourselves, we've missed the point. If we leave today feeling like, man, I need to do a lot to get myself right with God, we've missed the point. The point in what we do as we gather around God's word is to see Jesus. And if we ever open up scripture and don't see Jesus, we've missed the point. And so we are to insist on these things, insist on these things, insist on these things. The gospel is not for beginners. We don't grow, we don't grow out of it as we mature. Rather, Scripture teaches us and testifies to the fact that we don't grow out of it. Rather, the Christian life is growing more deeply into it. More deeply into the gospel, not past it. The gospel constantly reorients us to God. Because of this, I'm a believer, yet I am constantly tempted to become self-centered, self-focused, to be concerned with advancing myself or my agenda or making my name great or looking out for the affirmation and respect of others. But not only that, I'm tempted to rebel against the Lord even still as a believer, as one of his, because I'm still in the flesh. I'm still tempted to chase after uh, the pleasures of sin. But not only that, even as a believer, I'm tempted to rebel against God by thinking that I earn my way with God, I get right with God, I find favor with God through my own morality, through my own religious performance. And so I'm constantly tempted to turn away from the Lord, sometimes in dramatic ways and sometimes in subtle ways. The gospel constantly reorients us to God because it says this, as we insist upon it. It reminds us of our desperate and dire need for a Savior. We have no good apart from God. But we are not apart from God. Because while we have no good apart from Him and we desperately need Him, we see that in the gospel, God Himself would robe Himself in human flesh and come to 
us. As we insist upon the gospel, it constantly reorients our sinful, prone-to-wander hearts to God. And we desperately need that every day, and especially as we gather together on Sundays. So, Paul says, insist upon these things so that, we get a purpose statement here, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, notice two things. First, this is to be insisted upon so that those who believe in God may devote themselves to good works. We need to keep this in mind because we're often surprised by the world, and we're often surprised by the world because we want it to be easy. But this is the reality of living in this world until Jesus returns. The world is always going to act like the world. As we leave today, the world is not going to say, good job, you went to church. Hey, I really want you to be a better Christian this week. Keep on pursuing. You're doing great. The world is not going to encourage us to tell us more about what we consider about how God has said to live. The world doesn't want to hear what we have to say about life, what we think of life, what we think of morality, what we think about the values that honor the Lord. The world is not inviting us to hear more of what the Christian has to say. And so whenever we, we think about doing good works and being devoted to good works, we can't expect the world to be following along or be encouraging us to do so. So as Paul is saying, insist on these things so that those who believe may devote themselves to good work, we have to insist on these things because it's here that we find that encouragement. It's in the gospel that we find this encouragement to devote ourselves to good works, not in the world, not out there. It's here. It's in the word. It's in the gathering of the body. So secondly, he says, so that insist on these things, insist on the gospel constantly in your time together, so that those who believe in God may devote themselves to good works. This is what I notice about myself, and I think it's true for all of us. We don't often stumble into good works. Right? He doesn't just say, just go on their way. If they happen to find a good work here or there to do, let them do that. That's not what the gospel calls us to. In the gospel, we see God come to us. We see the Lord come to us to save us. And so the logic of the passage then is something like this. For those who have experienced the good works of God's salvation, they are then to go and devote themselves to good works. And where? In the world. And we think, well, that's hard. That's difficult. The world is not encouraging us to be devoted to good works. We say, of course not. But were we to devote ourselves to good works, we're following in our Savior's footsteps. The, the doctrine of the incarnation reveals this to us. God puts on human flesh and comes to his enemies. They didn't encourage Jesus to be more like Jesus. They put them on the cross. They put them on the cross. So, for us to follow in our Savior's footsteps means that we go out into the world, which we know will be hostile from one degree to another. And we live as Jesus has lived, devoted to doing good works. And again, why? 
Good works don't save people. God saves people through his word, through the powerful working of the Spirit. Good works, rather, adorn the good doctrine of the faith. They make it beautiful. So, we are to devote ourselves to good works. We are to consider, to contemplate, to be mindful of, to pray for opportunity. Lord, give me grace that I might do good works, that I might do good works, that I might honor you and live as Jesus lived, that I might adorn with works the message that I proclaim with my mouth. Mark Dever in his book on the church says this, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. So, gospel proclamation makes the faith audible. Christians living together in local congregations, it makes the gospel visible. As we come together as mixed up, messed up, broken people, and we actually love one another and care for one another and we care about the world around us, we are adorning with beauty the beautiful message of our Savior and what he has done and what he has accomplished. So what's the danger in not living this way? What's the danger in not adorning this beautiful doctrine with works that are good? Whenever we don't devote ourselves to good works and we allow ourselves to be given over to self-centeredness, only focused on ourself and our agendas and what we want to do, and we'll just stumble into good works whenever we want, this is what happens. We begin to adorn the doctrine of the gospel with garbage, with trash, not with something that's beautiful and speaks of the goodness of our Savior. And so we are commanded, encouraged to devote ourselves to good works that we might honor our Savior. Exodus 20, verse 7. Some of you have that one memorized. It's uh, always, whenever uh, people would ask, hey, which of the Ten Commandments have you never broken? You know, a lot of people proudly raise their hand. I've never taken the Lord's name in vain, Right? Exodus verse 20, verse 7 says this, You shall not take the, nor- the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What the Lord is commanding there is not just, he is commanding this, but he's not just commanding uh, you to say or don't say the Lord's name in a certain way. Okay? He's not just saying it's about what you say. Rather, the word take there, it means to carry or to bear or take something with you. So think about the context then of that command. The Israelites are about to go where? The promised land. And they're going to be living amongst pagan nations. These pagan nations, they are representatives of the gods that they believe in and of their names. They are living for their gods Israel is called as God's representative to take, to carry, to bear the name of the Lord in such a way that they are his good representatives glorifying him. So then, it's not just a matter of Israel saying or not saying the Lord's name in a right way. It means it's how they live. So we actually see Israel breaking this commandment and taking the Lord's name in books like the book of Judges. 
Israel begins to live like the pagan nations around them. They are supposed to be the Lord's representatives who bear the name of God well, but rather they give themselves over to false gods and they carry, they take the name of the Lord in vain. We see the Lord bring judgment upon his people for just this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, why is my name profaned amongst the nations? Why has it? It's because Israel has carried the name of the Lord in vain. They are not living for his glory. They are not living in a way that honors him. So then we come back and we say, if that's the case, we have all taken the Lord's name in vain. Because what it means to disobey this commandment then for the Christian is to say, I, who bear the name of Christ, am living like the world, contrary to the gospel, contrary to the word of God, to which I say, I plead guilty to that and am need and in desperate need for God's grace to walk in repentance. So we as the church, whether the church in Crete or here at Edgewood, we are to devote ourselves to good works. Why? Because that's how we take the name of the Lord amongst the nations in a way that honors and glorifies him. We don't want to be people who proclaim a beautiful message and then deny it by our works. We want to adorn with beauty the beautiful message of Jesus and what he's done. Paul says these things, the gospel, they are excellent and profitable for people. So the gospel, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly through the power of the Spirit, it will make us more profitable, more, more godly, more like Christ. As we see his glory revealed and displayed in what he's done, and as we insist on these things, it will transform us. It will cause us to look more like Jesus through the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of your labor, the fruit of your effort. It's the fruit of the Spirit as he works the word deep into our hearts. The realities of who God is and what he's done. And he shapes us to look more like Jesus. So may we give ourselves over to the word to insisting upon these things so that we would live in a way that honors him. Ray Ortland says this uh, in his book about the church. He says, when doctrine is clear and the culture, or we might say the good works, so when the doctrine is clear and the culture of the church is beautiful, that church will be powerful. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. If we, if we neglect the word of the Lord but just try and live really good, it's going to be weak. Good works can't save anyone. However, if we proclaim this word, yet live in a way that is contrary to it, the world will say, your doctrine looks pointless. It doesn't make you any better than us, so why would we want any of that? So how will Edgewood be profitable? How will we bear fruit? We don't grow out of the gospel, and we can never grow tired of hearing about it. Rather, we grow more deeply into it. This is profitable and excellent for us. So what then is unprofitable? What is divisive? We see that in verses 9 through 11. What is unprofitable and divisive for the church? 
So Paul says this, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So Titus is to avoid all of these things, to avoid these foolish controversies, to avoid all these discussions about genealogies. They're worthless. They're not profitable for the building up of the church, for godliness, for Christ-likeness. That word, therefore, avoid, it literally means to turn around from looking at, turn the complete opposite way of. The image that puts in my head is Joseph as he's fleeing Potiphar's wife, to, to literally run away from something. So Titus, or we see here what's being warned against is these false teachers in the church, they have devoted themselves. They are insisting upon these things that cannot be fully known. They are insisting upon things that cannot be known and seen in scriptures. And that's what they're arguing about. That's what they're constantly questioning. That's what they're constantly giving themselves over to. And Paul says that is worthless and unprofitable for the church. John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on this passage, he calls these people questionarians. I like that. I might use that of some of my youth when they ask endless questions that I can't answer about things. You're just being a questionarian. So Calvin calls them questionarians. They're people who are constantly giving themselves over to questions that aren't answered, that aren't seen in Scripture. They're not devoted to the Word. They're not devoting to the teachings of Scripture. Rather, they would, think, they would rather give themselves over to, insist upon, discuss, talk about these other things. So you can imagine, as they come to Sunday school, they've got their cards ready to be pulled out. What are we arguing about today, right? Or they get on social media, right? What can I throw out there today to stir the pot a little bit? The thing we have to be cautious with here, though, is some will take these verses to say, well, isn't doctrine divisive? Don't people split over doctrine? And the answer to that is, doctrine is still important. Especially, I mean, we can just learn just from Titus, doctrine is essential. It is necessary in producing godliness and good works. These things, while there might be slight disagreements here and there, these things are clearly seen and taught in Scripture. What these false teachers, false teachers are doing is they're giving themselves over to things that are outside of what's seen and known and taught in Scripture. And so we have to be cautious and say, that doesn't mean we can take doctrine, which seems to divide, and people just argue all the time. We, just, we need to do away with that, right? We just need to love one another. Well, that's not the point, right? That's not what, that's not what Paul has been emphasizing time and time again throughout Titus. And so just on the matter of disagreements in doctrine, we ought to say this. Uh, Al Mohler, I think, was the first one to coin this phrase, and then Gavin Ortland wrote a book on it uh, just a couple years ago called Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage. So triage, it's, it's a medical term. It's especially used on the battlefield. It's whenever as injuries are happening all around, the medic is to do triage. They are to assess the urgency of all of the different needs. So there's like first tier, second tier, third tier, and so on, right? That kid has a paper cut. I'll get to him way later. That person's bleeding out. I need to get to them right now, right? And so theological triage, what Moeller and Ortland argue for, 
is the church needs to do a better job, according to wisdom and the scriptures, of saying these are things that are of first tier of importance. They are essential to the faith. Examples of that might be the doctrine of the Trinity. Do we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That is essential to the Christian faith, to being a genuine believer. Justification by faith alone through God's grace. These things are essential. They are marks of being a genuine believer. All right? So anything outside of that is already a division. All right? Because you're not believing truly in the Lord as as is revealed in Scripture. Those are first-tier things, doctrines, teachings. But then there's second-tier doctrines or teachings. These are things that genuine believers can disagree on, but they probably can't be members of the same church together on. It affects how you worship and how you're together. An example of this would be something like this. You have a Presbyterian and a Baptist, and they love the Lord. Yet they disagree on doctrines of infant baptism or believer's baptism. That's a second-tier issue. It does affect how you worship, but it doesn't mean that one of the other is outside of the Christian faith. All right? We wouldn't say that that's an essential. And this, then there's third-tier issues as we continue down the line. There's third-tier issues where we can have disagreements. Maybe, maybe you and I, we go get coffee and we disagree. We have a little friendly debate over some matters. Right? Those are the types of issues that we see within the church where there can be friendly disagreements, genuine disagreements, but we can still worship together and be unified within a local congregation together. So maybe those are examples of maybe what we believe about the end times, right? Or maybe what we believe about gifts of the Spirit or something like that. There's disagreements, but we can still worship the Lord together. Ortland and Moeller are calling for the church to do theological triage, and I think we need to do that as well. We need to be on guard against becoming divisive people because what can often happen is as we give ourselves over to the Word and as we are growing in our knowledge of the Lord because of our sinfulness is that we can become prideful, arrogant, divisive. We can care more about pushing our agendas about finding our particular hobby horse and then riding it to the death to the detriment of God's body, of the body of Jesus Christ. And so what's called for then is a certain humility. And so I, I might, we could maybe say in this way, if your doctrine leads you to be arrogant, you are not doctrinally sound. But when we constantly insist upon the gospel and we are reoriented to God, it will cause us to be more humble, to be gentle, to be kind, even in our disagreements with one another. The thing that we're seeing here in the church in Crete and what Paul is warning against is we have people who are so insistent upon their own ways and what they desire that they're doing that to stir up division. And unfortunately, what we can so often see in the church is this, that we are quicker to fight with one another than fight for unity. Now, we have to say about Edgewood, it is the most unified body that I've ever experienced. The, the way in which people can hold to different doctrinal stances and, and disagreements, I, all I've ever seen and witnessed is humility towards one another. And so all I want to simply say is this, is let's continue in that humility towards one another. Let's continue to not 
to, to be on guard against fighting with each other, and let's continue to fight with unity. To fight, for, I'm sorry, to fight for unity within the church, to love one another, to care for one another, even where there are genuine disagreements. And let's come back again and again to the word of God and be encouraged and be strengthened even in what we believe. So doctrine then is not a sword to wield against uh, each other, but it's a sword that we get to wield against our spiritual enemy. We don't want to fight each other, right? We want to take the teachings of Scripture and find assurance and strength and be emboldened against the enemy that we do have, our spiritual enemy that we do have. Ray Ortland again says this, We can unsay with our culture what we say in our doctrine. We can unsay with our culture what we say in our doctrine and not even realize it. And that is why we have to constantly insist upon the gospel. As that makes all the doctrines and teachings of the word beautiful and it constantly reorients us to God. Because in Jesus we see this. Does Jesus have any doctrinal issues? No. Yet, I probably do. I don't like to think that I do, but I probably do. Yet the Lord is still kind to me. If Jesus can be kind to mixed up, messed up people like all of us, then we can seek to be kind and gracious and humble towards one another, even in our disagreements. The scary truth of verses 10 through 11 is this, though is I can so easily become someone who is prideful, who is arrogant, who says, well, I've obviously learned more than that person, and I can look down my nose at someone. Or I can so easily be given over to, to something and just hung up on it, and, and I have to, to wield that against my brothers and sisters. I have to convince them to believe the same thing or get on my page, right? We can so easily fall into that trap because we are still flesh and blood and we wrestle against fleshly temptations to divide. But Paul says this, for the person who is stirring up division, whose only purpose is to divide the body of Jesus Christ, warn them and warn them again and then after that have nothing to do with them. Because of this right here, if Jesus so cared for the unity of his body that he would lay down his life for them, shouldn't we care about the unity of his body? Shouldn't we fight for the unity of the body rather than fighting against one another? So the person who is stirring up division is not acting in accordance with what they profess with their mouth. They proclaim to know the Lord, but they deny him by their works. And we can all just be so easily tempted to fall into those traps. And so we pray for God's grace to protect us, to keep us, to guard us here at Edgewood as a body and as individuals, that we would be humble towards one another. So we are to insist, insist, insist upon the gospel. We're to pray it, to sing it, to see it in the word that it would have its good effect in our lives through the powerful working of the Spirit. Let's us at Edgewood devote ourselves to doing good works. Why? Because the doing of good works says the gospel is so beautiful 
that's proclaimed with our mouth. So let us adorn that beautiful message with good works. Let's make beautiful with good works that message, reflecting the goodness of our Savior as he, as we have come to enjoy the good works of salvation that he has done for us and brought us into. So would we at Edgewood devote ourselves to the word of the Lord, that we would be devoted to doing good works. May we be a church that adorns that message well. My prayer is that for those of you in this room who might not yet know the Lord, there is no more beautiful message. The reality is that in this world, all people apart from God are dead in their sin. But the God of the Bible, the, God reveals to us this. He delights to save. He delights to take people who were once his enemies and make them his children. There is no more beautiful message. There, we've been, as we are in Isaiah today, salvation is found nowhere else than in the person and work of Jesus. So my prayer is that if your eyes are being opened to see just how beautiful that is, that you'd put your faith and trust in him today. And if you have any questions or want to talk about that in any way, I and so many people in this room would be so excited to talk to you about that. So my prayer for us is this, is that we would continue to devote ourselves to the good news of what Jesus has done And as we experience more and more of the good works that he has brought us into in his salvation, that we would devote ourselves to good works. So as we go out, we would live in a way that adorns the beautiful message of the gospel. Let me pray, and then we'll respond in worship. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and in your mercy, um, while we were fully deserving of your judgment, of your wrath, You delighted to send your son to take upon himself our sin, to become for us the propitiation of our sins. That in Jesus, the wrath of God would be satisfied. That for all who call upon his name, we could be made your children, your sons, and your daughters. You have so graciously brought us to come to enjoy the good works of salvation that Jesus has done and accomplished for us through the Spirit. So, Lord God, would you give us grace to insist upon these things in our lives as individuals and as a church body, that we would constantly give ourselves over to the truth of the gospel, growing more deeply into it, that we would be humbled, but that we would also be lifted up to see how good you are and how gracious you have been towards us. So in that, Lord God, would you give us grace to devote ourselves to do good works. Lord God, we thank you We don't have to save ourselves according to our work, but you save us and you have prepared for us good works that we might walk in them. So would you give us grace to devote ourselves to it, to live in such a way that honors you and glorifies you and adorns the beautiful message of the gospel with beauty. So would you bless us in that, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond in praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim 
to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. In Hebrews chapter 13, 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.